0: Chapter 5. That is the world in which my dreams brought me dim, scattered echoes every night. I cannot hope to give my true idea of the horror and dread contained in such echoes. For it was upon a wholly intangible quality, the sharp sense of pseudo-memory, that which feelings mainly depended. My studies gradually gave me a defense against these feelings, in the form of rational psychological explanations. And this saving influence has augmented by this subtle touch of accustomedness, which comes with the passage of time. Yet, in spite of everything, the vague, creeping terror would return momentarily, and now and then. It did not, however, engulf me as it had before. And after 1922, I lived in a very normal life of work and recreation. In the course of years, I began to feel that my experience, together with the kindred cases and the related folklore, ought to be definitely summarized and published for the benefit of serious students. Hence, I prepared a series of articles, briefly covering the whole ground, and illustrated with crude sketches of some of the shapes, scenes, decorative motifs, and hieroglyphs remembered from the dreams. These appeared at various times during nineteen twenty eight and nineteen twenty nine in the Journal of the American Psychological Society, but did not attract much attention. Meanwhile, I continued to record my dreams with the minutest care, even though the growing stack of reports attained even though the growing stack of reports attained troublesomely vast proportions. On July tenth, 1934, there was forwarded to me by the Psychological Society the letter which opened the culminating and most horrible phase of the whole mad ordeal. It was postmarked from Pilbara, Western Australia, and bore the signature of one whom I found, upon inquiry, to be a mining engineer of considerable prominence. Enclosed were some very curious snapshots. I will reproduce the text in its entirety and no reader can fail to understand how tremendous an effect it and the photographs had upon me. I was, for a time, almost stunned and incredulous, for although I had often thought that some basis of fact must underlie certain phases of the legends which had colored my dreams, I was nonetheless unprepared for anything like a tangible survival from a lost world remote beyond all imagination most devastating of all were the photographs. For here, in cold, incontroversible realism, there stood out against a background of sand certain worn-down water-ridge storm-weathered blocks of stone whose slightly convex tops and slightly concave bottoms told their own story. When I studied them with the magnifying glass, I could see all too plainly, amidst the batterings and pittings, the trace of those vast curvilinear designs and occasional hieroglyphs whose significance had become so hideous to me. But here is the letter which speaks for itself. Pilbara, West Australia, May 18, 1934. Professor N. W. Peasley, American Psychological Society. 30 East 41st Street, New York City, USA. My dear sir, a recent conversation with Dr. Ian e. Boyle of Perth, and some papers with your articles, which he has just sent me, made it advisable for me to tell you about certain things I have seen in the great sandy desert east of our gold field here. It was seem, in view of the peculiar legends about old cities with huge stonework and strange designs and hieroglyphs which you describe, and I have come upon something very important. The Blackfellows have always been full of talk about great stones with marks upon them, and seem to have a terrible fear of such things. They connect them in some way with their common racial legends about Budai, the gigantic old man who lies asleep for ages underground with his head on his arm, and who will someday awake and eat up the world. There are some very old and half-forgotten tales of enormous underground huts of great stones, where passages led down and down, and where horrible things have happened. The Blackfellows claim that once some warriors, fleeing of a battle, went down into one and never came back. But that frightful winds began to blow from the place very soon after they went down. However, there usually isn't much in what these natives say. But what I have to tell you is more than this. Two years ago, when I was prospecting about 500 miles east in the desert, I came on a lot of queer pieces of dressed stone, perhaps three by two by two feet in size, and weathered and pitted to the very limit. At first, I couldn't find any of the marks the black fellows told about, but when I looked close enough, I could make that some deeply carved lines, in spite of the weathering. They were peculiar curves, and just like that, the blacks had tried to describe. I imagine there must have been thirty or forty blocks, some nearly buried in the sand, and all within a circle, perhaps a quarter of a mile's diameter. When I saw some, I looked around closely for more and made a careful reckoning of the place with my instruments. I also took pictures of ten or twelve of the most typical blocks, and will enclose the prints for you to see. In turn, I turned my information and pictures over to the government at Perth, but they have done nothing with them. Then I met Dr. Boyle, who had read your articles in the Journal of the American Psychological Society, and in time happened to mention the stones. He was enormously interested, and became quite excited when I showed him my snapshots, saying that the stones and markings were just like those of the masonry you had dreamed about and seen described in legend. He meant to write you, but was delayed. Meanwhile, he sent me most of the magazines with your articles, and I saw at once from your drawings and descriptions that my stones are certainly the kind you mean. You can appreciate this, from the enclosed prints. Later on, you will hear directly from Dr. Boyle. Now, I can understand how important all this will be to you. Without questions, we are faced with the remains of an unknown civilization, older than any dreamed of before, and forming a basis for your legends. As a mining engineer, I have some knowledge of geology, and can tell you that these blocks are so ancient, they frighten me. They are mostly sandstone and granite, the one is almost certainly made of a queer sort of cement or concrete. They bear evidence of water action, as if this part of the world had been submerged and come up again after long ages. All since these blocks were made and used, it is a matter of hundreds of thousands of years, or heaven knows how much more. I don't like to think about it. In view of your previous diligent work in tracking down the legends and everything connected with them, I cannot doubt but you will want to lead an expedition to the desert and make some archaeological excavations. Both Dr. Boyle and I are prepared to cooperate in such work if you, or organizations known to you, can furnish the funds. I can get together a dozen miners for the heavy digging. The blacks would be of no use, for i found that they have almost maniacal fear of this particular spot. Boyle and I are saying nothing to others. For you, very obviously, ought to have precedence in any discoveries or credit. The place can be reached from Pilbara in about four days by motor tractor, which we'd need for our apparatus. It is somewhat west and south of Warburton Path of 1873 and a 100 miles southeast of Joanna Spring. We could float things up the DeGray River instead of starting from Pilbara, but all that can be talked over later. Roughly the stones lie at a point about 22 degrees, 3 minutes and 14 seconds south latitude, 125 degrees, 0 minutes and 39 seconds east longitude. The climate is tropical, and the desert conditions are trying. Any expedition had better made in winter, June or July or August. I shall welcome further correspondence upon this subject, and am keenly eager to assist in any plan. You may devise after studying your articles. I am deeply impressed with the profound significance of the whole matter. Dr. Boyle will write later. When rapid communication is needed, a cable to Perth can be relayed by wireless. Hoping profoundly for an early message, believe me, most faithfully yours, Robert B.F. McKenzie. It was on Monday, June 3rd, that we saw the first of the half buried blocks. I cannot describe the emotion with which I actually touched an objective reality, a fragment of Cyclopean masonry in every respect, like the blocks in the walls of my dream buildings. There was a distinct trace of carving, and my hands trembled as I recognized part of a curvilinear decorative scheme made hellish to me through years of tormenting nightmare and baffling research. A month of digging brought a total of 1,250 blocks in varying stages of wear and disintegration. Most of these were carven megaliths with curved tops and bottoms. A majority were smaller, flatter plain surfaced, and square or octagonally cut, like those of the floors and pavements in my dreams. While few were singularly massive and curved, or slanted in such a manner as to suggest use in vaulting or groining, or as part of arches or round window casings. The deeper and the farther north and east we dug, the more blocks we found, though we still failed to discover any trace of arrangement among them. Professor Dyer was appalled at the measureless age of the fragments, and Freeborn found traces of symbols, which fitted darkly into certain Papuan and Polynesian legends of infinite antiquity. The condition and scattering of the blocks told mutely of the vertiginous cycles of time and geologic upheavals of cosmic savagery. We had an aeroplane with us, and my son Wingate would often go up to different heights and scan the sand and rock waste for signs of dim, large scale outlines, either differences of level or trails of scattered blocks. His results were virtually negative, for whenever he would one day think he had glimpsed some significant trend, he would, on his next trip, find the impression replaced by another equally insubstantial, a result of the sifting windblown sand. One or two of these ephemeral suggestions, though, affected me queerly and disagreeably. They seemed, after a fashion, to dovetail horribly with something which I had dreamed or read, but which I can no longer remember. There was a terrible pseudo-familiarity about them, which somehow made me look furtively and apprehensively over the abominable, sterile terrain toward the north and northeast. Around the first week in July 1st, developed... An unaccountable set of mixed emotions about that general northeasterly region. There was horror and there was curiosity. But more than that, there was a persistent and perplexing illusion of memory. I tried all sorts of psychological expedients to get these notions out of my head, but met with no success. Sleeplessness also gained upon me, but I almost welcomed this because of the resultant shortening of my dream periods. I acquired the habit of taking long, lone walks in the desert late at night, usually to the north or northeast, whither the sum of my strange new impulses seemed subtly to pull me. Sometimes, on these walks, I would stumble over nearly buried fragments of the ancient masonry, though there were fewer visible blocks here than where we had started. I felt sure that there must be a vast abundance beneath the surface, The ground was less level than our camp, and the prevailing high winds now and then piled the sand into fantastic temporary hillocks, exposing some traces of the Elder Stones, while it covered other traces. I was clearly anxious to have the excavations extend to this territory, yet at the same time dreaded what might be revealed. Obviously, I was getting into a rather bad state, all the worse because I could not account for it. An indication of my poor nervous health can be gained from my response to an odd discovery, which I made on one of my nocturnal rambles. It was on the evening of July 11th, when a gibbous moon flooded the mysterious hillocks with a curious pallor. Wandering somewhat beyond my usual limits, I came upon a great stone which seemed to differ markedly from any we had encountered. It was almost wholly covered, but I stooped and cleared away the sand with my hands. Later, studying the object carefully and supplementing the moonlight with my electric torch. Unlike the other very large rocks, this one was perfectly square-cut, with no convex or concave surface. It seemed too to be of the dark basaltic substance, wholly dissimilar to the granite and sandstone, and occasional concrete of the now familiar fragments. Suddenly, I rose-turned and ran for the camp at top speed. It was a wholly unconscious and irrational flight, and only when I was close to my tent did I fully realize why I had run. Then it came to me. The queer dark stone was something which I had dreamed and read about, and which was linked with the uttermost horrors of the aeon old legendary. It was one of the blocks of that basaltic elder masonry which the fabled great race held in such fear. The tall, windowless ruins left by those brooding, half material alien things that festered in Earth's nether abysses, and against whose wind-like invisible forces the trapdoor was sealed and the sleepless sentinels posted. I remained awake all that night, and by dawn realized how silly I had been to let the shadow of a myth upset me. Instead of being frightened, I should have had a discoverer's enthusiasm. The next forenoon, I told the others about my find, and Dyer, Freeborn, Boyle, and my son and I set out to view the anomalous block. Failure, however, confronted us. I had formed no clear idea of the stone's location, and a light wind had wholly altered the hillocks of shifting sand. Chapter 6 I come now to the crucial and most difficult part of my narrative. All the more difficult because I cannot be quite certain of its reality. At times I feel uncomfortably sure that I was not dreaming or deluded, And it is this feeling in view of the stupendous implications which the objective truth of my experience would raise, which impels me to make this record. My son, a trained psychologist with the fullest and most sympathetic knowledge of my whole case, shall be the primary judge what I have to tell. First, let me outline the externals of the matter as those at the camp know them. On the night of July 17th to the 18th, after a windy day, I retired early, but could not sleep. Rising shortly before eleven, and afflicted as usual with that strange feeling regarding the northeastward terrain, I set out on one of my typical nocturnal walks, seeing and greeting only one person, an Australian miner named Tupper, as I left our precincts. The moon slightly passed full shone from a clear sky and drenched the ancient sands with a white leprous radiance which seemed to me somehow infinitely evil. There was no longer any wind, nor did any return for nearly five hours as amply attested by Tupper and others who did not sleep through the night. The Australian last saw me walking rapidly across the pallid, secret guarding hillocks towards the northeast. About 3.30 a.m. a violent wind blew up waking everyone in the camp and felling three of the tents. The sky was unclouded and the desert still blazed with the leprous moonlight. As the party saw to the tents, my absence was noted, but in view of my previous walks, this circumstance gave no one alarm. And yet, as many as three men, all Australians, seemed to feel something sinister in the air. Mackenzie explained to Professor Freeborn that this was a fear picked up from blackfellow folklore. The natives having woven a curious fabric of malignant myth about the high winds, which at long intervals sweep across the sands under a clear sky. Such winds, it is whispered, blow out of great stone huts under the ground where terrible things have happened, and are never felt except near places where the big marked stones are scattered. Close to four, the gale subsided as suddenly as it had begun leaving the sand hills in new and unfamiliar shapes. It was just past five, with the bloated, fungoid moon sinking in the west, when I staggered into camp, hatless, tattered, features scratched and ensanguined, and without any electric torch. Most of the men had returned to bed, but Professor Dyer was smoking a pipe in front of his tent. Seeing my winded and almost frenzied state, he called Dr. Boyle, And the two of them got me to my cot and made me comfortable. My son, roused by the stir, soon joined them, and they all tried to force me to lie still and attempt to sleep. Of anything strange either seen or experienced, I hinted absolutely nothing, exercising the greatest self-control in that respect. But I spoke of a change of mind regarding the whole work of the expedition, and earnestly urged a halt at all digging toward the northeast my reasoning was patently weak for i mentioned a dearth of blocks a wish not to offend the superstitious miners a possible shortage of funds from the college and other things either untrue or irrelevant naturally no one paid the least attention to my new wishes not even my son whose concern for my health was very obvious the next day i was up and around the camp but took no part in the excavations Seeing that I could not stop the work, I decided to return home as soon as possible for the sake of my nerves, and made my son promise to fly me in the plane to Perth, a thousand miles to the southwest, as soon as he had surveyed the region I wished to let alone. If, I reflected, the thing I had seen was still visible, I might decide to attempt a specific warning, even at the cost of ridicule. It was just conceivable that the miners who knew the local folklore might back me up, Humoring me, my son made the survey that very afternoon. Flying over all the terrain, my walk could possibly have covered. Yet nothing of what I had found remained in sight. It was the case of the anomalous basalt block all over again. The shifting sand had wiped out every trace. For an instant, I half-regretted having lost a certain awesome object in my stark fright. But now I know that the loss was merciful. I can still believe my whole experience was an illusion. Especially if, as I devoutly hope, that hellish abyss is never found. Wingate took me to Perth July 20th, though declining to abandon the expedition and return home. He stayed with me until the 25th, when the steamer for Liverpool sailed. Now, in the cabin of the Empress, I am pondering long and frantically on the entire matter, and I have decided that my son at least must be informed. It shall rest with him whether to diffuse the matter more widely. In order to meet any eventuality, I prepared the summary of my background as already known in scattered way to others, and will now as well briefly as possible what seemed to happen during my absence from the camp on that hideous night. Nerves on edge, I whipped into a kind of perverse eagerness, by that inexplicable, dread-mingled, pseudo urge toward the northeast, I plodded on beneath the evil, burning moon. Here and there, I saw, half-shrouded by sand, those primal, cyclopean blocks left from nameless and forgotten aeons. The incalculable age and brooding horror of this monstrous waste began to oppress me as never before. And I could not keep from thinking of my maddening dreams, of the frightful legends which lay behind them, and of the present fears of natives and miners concerning the desert and its carbon stones. And yet I plodded on as if to some eldritch rendezvous, more and more assailed by bewildering fantasies, convulsions, and pseudo-memories. I thought of some of the possible contours of the lines of stones as seen by my son from the air, and wondered why they seemed at once so ominous and so familiar. Something was fumbling and rattling in the latch of my recollection, while another unknown force sought to keep the portal bared. The night was windless, and the pallid sand curved upward and downward like frozen waves of the sea. I had no goal, but somehow plowed along as if the fate-bound assurance. My dreams welled up into the waking world, so that each sand-embedded megalith same part of endless rooms and corridors of pre-human masonry, carved and hieroglyphed with symbols that I knew too well from years of custom as a captive mind of the great race. At moments I fancied I saw those omniscient conical horrors moving about at their accustomed tasks, and I feared to look down lest I find myself one of them in aspect. Yet all the while I saw the sand-covered box as well as the rooms and corridors, the evil burning moon as well as the lamps of luminous crystal, the endless desert as well as the waving ferns and scythads beyond the windows. I was awake and dreaming at the same time. I do not know how long or how far or indeed in just what direction. I had walked when I first spied the heap of blocks bared by the day's wind. It was the largest group in one place that I had so far seen, and so sharply did it impress me that the visions of fabulous aeons faded suddenly away. Again, there were only the desert and the evil moon and the shards of an unguessed past. I drew close and paused and cast the added light of my electric torch over the tumbled pile. A hillock had blown away leaving a low, irregular round mass of megaliths and smaller fragments some forty feet across, and from two to eight feet high. From the very outset, I realized that there was some utterly unprecedented quality about these stones. Not only was the mere number of them quite without parallel, but something in the sand-worn traces of design arrested me as I scanned them under the mingling beams of the moon and my torch. Not that anyone differed essentially from the earlier specimens we found, it was something subtler than that. The impression did not come when I looked at the block alone, but only when I ran my eye over several almost simultaneously. Then, at last, the truth dawned on me. The curved linear patterns on many of these blocks were closely related, parts of one vast decorative conception. For the first time in this aeon-soaked waste, I had come up a mass of masonry in this old position, tumbled and fragmentary, it is true but nonetheless existing in a very definitive state. Mounting at a low place, I clambered laboriously over the heap, here and there clearing away the sand with my fingers, and constantly striving to interpret varieties of size, shape, and style, and relationships of design after a while I could vaguely guess at the nature of the bygone structures, and at the designs which had once stretched over the vast surfaces of the primal masonry. The perfect identity of the whole was some of my dream glimpses, appalled and unnerved me. This was once a cyclopean corridor thirty feet tall, paved with octagonal blocks, and solidly vaulted overhead. There would have been rooms opening off to the right, And at the farther end one of these strange inclined planes would have wound down to still lower depths. I started violently as these conceptions occurred to me, for there were more in them than the blocks themselves had supplied. How did I know that this level would have been far underground? How did I know that the plane leading upward should have been behind me? How did I know that the long subterranean passage to the square pillars ought to lie on the left one level above me. Perhaps it was, yet that night I embarked without hesitancy upon such a descent. Again, there was manifest that lure of driving a fatality, which had all along seemed to direct my course. With torch flashing intermittently to save the battery, I commenced a mad scramble down the sinister, cyclopean incline below the opening sometimes facing forward as I found good hand and footholds, and at other times turning to face the heap of megaliths, as I clung and fumbled more precariously. In two directions beside me, distant walls of carven, crumbling masonry loomed dimly under the direct beams of my torch. Ahead, however, was only unbroken blackness. I kept no track of time during my downward scramble. So seething and baffling, hints and images, was my mind, that all objective matters seemed withdrawn into incalculable distances. Physical sensation was dead, and even fear remained as a wraith-like inactive gargoyle leering impotently at me. Eventually, I reached a level floor strewn with fallen blocks, shapeless fragments of stone, and sand and detritus of every kind. On either side, perhaps thirty feet apart, rose massive walls culminating in huge groinings. That they were carved I could just discern, but the nature of the carvings was beyond my perception. What held me most was the vaulting overhead. The beam from my torch could not reach the roof, but the lower parts of the monstrous arches stood out distinctly. And so perfect was their identity with what I had seen in countless dreams of the Elder World that I trembled actively for the first time. Behind and high above, a faint luminous blur told of the distant moonlit world outside. Some vague shred of caution warned me that I should not let it out of my sight, lest I have no guide for my return. I now advanced towards the wall on my left, where the traces of carving were plainest. The littered floor was nearly as hard to traverse as the downward heap had been, but I managed to prick my difficult way. In one place, I heaved aside some blocks and kicked away the detritus to see what the pavement was like and shuddered at the utter, fateful familiarity of the great octagonal stones whose buckled surface still held roughly together. Reaching a convenient distance from the wall, I cast the torchlight slowly and carefully over its worn remnants of carving. Some bygone influx of water seemed to have acted on the sandstone surface. While there were curious incrustations, which I could not explain, in places the masonry was very loose and distorted, and I wondered how many aeons more this primal, hidden edifice could keep its remaining traces of form amidst Earth's heavings. But it was the carvings themselves that excited me the most. Despite their time-crumbled state, they were relatively easy to trace at close range and the complete intimate familiarity of every detail almost stunned my imagination. That the major attributes of this hoary masonry should be familiar was not beyond normal credibility. Powerfully impressing the weavers of certain myths, they had become embodiments in a stream of cryptic lore, which somehow coming to my notice during the amnesic period had evoked vivid images in my subconscious mind, But how could I explain the exact and minute fashion in which each line and spiral of these strange designs tallied with what I had dreamt for more than a score of years? What obscure forgotten iconography could have reproduced such subtle shading and nuance with so persistently, exactly, and unvaryingly besieged my sleeping vision night after night? For this was no chance or remote resemblance. Definitely and absolutely, the millennially ancient Aeon Hidden Corridor in which I stood was the original of something I knew in sleep as intimately as I knew my own house in Crane Street, Arkham. Chapter 7 From that point forward, my impressions are scarcely to be relied on. Indeed, I still possess a final desperate hope that they all form parts of some demonic dream, or illusion born of delirium. A fever raged in my brain, and everything came to me through a kind of haze, something only intermittently. The rays of my torch shot feebly into the engulfing blackness, bringing phantasmal flashes of hideously familiar walls and carvings, all blighted with the decay of ages. In one place, a tremendous mass of vaulting had fallen, so that I had to clamber over a mighty mound of stones, reaching almost to the ragged, grotesquely stalactite roof. It was all the ultimate apex of nightmare, made worse by the blasphemous tug of pseudo-memory, and that was my own size in relation to the monstrous masonry. I felt oppressed by a sense of unwanted smallness, as if the sight of these towering walls from a mere human body was something wholly new and abnormal. Again and again, I looked nervously down at myself, vaguely disturbed by the human form I possessed. Onward through the blackness of the abyss, I leaped, plunged, and staggered, often falling and bruising myself. and Once nearly shattered my torch. Every stone and corner of that demonic gulf was known to me, and at many points I stopped to cast beams of light through the choked and crumbling, yet familiar archways. Some rooms had totally collapsed, others bare, others were bare or debris-filled, In a few I saw masses of metal, some fairly intact, some broken, and some crushed or battered, which I recognized as the colossal pedestals or tables of my dreams. What they could in truth have been, I dared not guess. I found the downward incline and began its descent, though after a time halted by a gaping, ragged chasm, whose narrowest point could not be much less than four feet across. Here, the stone had fallen through, revealing incalculable, inky depths beneath. I knew there were two more sailor levels in this titan edifice, and trembled with fresh panic as I recalled the metal-clamped trapdoor on the lowest one. There could be no guards now, for what had lurked beneath had long since done its hideous work, and sunk into its long decline. By the time of the post-human beetle race, it would be quite dead, and yet, as I thought of the native legends, I trembled anew. It cost me a terrible effort to vault that yawning chasm, since the littered floor prevented a running start. But madness drove me on. I chose a place close to the left hand wall where the rift was least wide and the landing spot reasonably clear of dangerous debris, and after one frantic moment reached the other side in safety. At last, gaining the lower level, I stumbled on past the archway of the Room of Machines, within which were fantastic ruins of metal half-buried beneath fallen vaulting. Everything was where I knew it would be, and I climbed confidently over the heaps which barred the entrance of a vast transverse corridor. This, I realized, would take me under the city to the Central Archives. Endless ages seemed to unroll as I stumbled, leaped, and crawled along debris-cluttered corridor. Now and then I could make up carvings on the age-stained walls, some familiar, others seemingly added since the period of my dreams. Since this was a subterranean house-connecting highway, there was no archway save when the route led through the lower levels of various buildings. At some of these intersections, I turned aside long enough to look down well-remembered corridors and into well-remembered rooms. Twice only did I find any radical changes from what I had dreamed of, and in one of these cases, I could trace the sealed-up outline of the archway I remembered. I shook violently and felt a curious surge of retarding weakness. As I steered a hurried and reluctant course through the crypt of one of those great windowless, ruined towers, whose alien basalt masonry bespoke a whispered and horrible origin. This primal vault was round and fully 200 feet across, with nothing carved upon the dark-hued stonework. The floor was here free from anything else save dust and sand, and I could see the apertures leading upward and downward. There were no stairs or inclines. Indeed, my dreams had pictured those elder towers as wholly untouched by the fabulous great race. Those who had built them had not needed stairs or inclines. In the dreams, the downward aperture had been tightly sealed and nervously guarded. Now it lay open, black and yawning, and giving forth a current of cool, damp air. Of what limitless caverns of eternal night might brood below, I could not permit myself to think. Later, crawling my way along a badly heaped section of the corridor, I reached a place where the roof had wholly caved in. The debris rose like a mountain and I climbed up over it, passing through a vast empty space where my torchlight could reveal neither walls nor vaulting. This, I reflected, must be the cellar of the house, of the metal purveyors, fronting the third square not far from the archives. What had happened to it I could not conjecture. I found the corridor again beyond the mountain of detritus and stones, but after a short distance, encountered a wholly choked place where the fallen vaulting almost touched the perilously sagging ceiling. How I managed to wrench and tear aside enough blocks to afford a passage, and how I dared disturb the tightly packed fragments when the laced shift of equilibrium might have brought down all the tons of superincumbent masonry. To crush me to nothingness, I do not know. It was the sheer madness that impelled and guided me. If, indeed, my whole underground adventure was not, as I hope, a hellish delusion, our phase of dreaming. But I did make, or dream, that I made a passage that I could squirm through. As I wriggled over the mound of debris, my torch switched continuously on, thrust deeply within my mouth. I felt myself torn by the fantastic stalactites of the jagged floor above me. I was now close to the great underground archival structure which seemed to form my goal, sliding and clambering down the farthest side of the barrier and picking my way along the remaining stretch of corridor with hand-held, intermittently flashing torch. I came at last to a low, circular crypt with arches still in a marvelous state of preservation, opening off on every side. The walls, or such parts of them as lay within reach of my torchlight, were densely hieroglyphed, and chiseled with typical curvilinear symbols, some added since the period of my dreams. This, I realized, was my fated destination, and I turned at once through a familiar archway on my left, that I could find a clear passage up and down the incline to all the surviving levels. I had oddly little doubt. This vast, earth-protected pile housing the annals of all the solar system had been built with supernal skill and strength to last as long as that system itself. Blocks of stupendous size, poised with mathematical genius, and bound with cements of incredible toughness, had combined to form a mass as firm Is the planet's rocky core. Here, after ages more prodigious than I could sanely grasp, is buried bulk stood in all its essential contours, the vast, dust-drifted floors, scarce sprinkled with the litter, everywhere else so dominant. The relatively easy walking from this point onward went curiously to my head. All the frantic eagerness hitherto, frustrated by obstacles now took itself out in a kind of febrile speed, and I literally raced along the low-roof, monstrosity, well-remembered aisles beyond the archway. I was past being astonished by the familiarity of what I saw. On every hand, the great hieroglyph metals' shelf doors loomed monstrously, some yet in place, others sprung open, and still others bent and buckled under bygone geological stress, not quite strong enough to shatter the titan masonry. Here and there, a dust-covered heap below a gaping empty shelf seemed to indicate where cases had been shaken down by earth tremors. On occasional pillars were great symbols or letters, proclaiming classes and subclasses of volumes. Once I paused before an open vault where I saw some of the accustomed metal cases, Still in position amidst the omnipresent gritty dust, reaching up, I dislodged one of the thinner specimens with some difficulty and rested it on the floor for inspection. It was titled in the prevailing curvilinear hieroglyphs, though something in the arrangement of the characters seemed subtly unusual. The odd mechanism of the hooked fastener was perfectly well known to me, and I snapped up the still restless and workable lid and drew out the book within. The latter was expected. Was some 20 by 15 inches in area and 2 inches thick, the thin metal covers opening at the top. Its tough cellulose pages seemed unaffected by the myriad cycles of time they had lived through. And I studied the queerly pigmented, brushed-on letters of text, symbols utterly unlike either the usual curved hieroglyphs or any alphabet known to human scholarship. With a haunting, half-aroused memory... It came to me that this was the language used by a captive mind I had known slightly in my dreams. A mind from a large asteroid, which had survived much of the archaic life and lore of the primal planet whereof it formed a fragment. At the same time, I recalled that this level of the Archives was devoted to volumes dealing with the non-terrestrial planets. As I ceased poring over this incredible document, I saw that the light of my torch was beginning to fail, hence quickly inserted the extra battery I always had with me. Then, armed with the stronger radiance, I resumed my feverous racing through the unending tangles of aisles and corridors, recognizing now and then some familiar shelf and vaguely annoyed by the acoustic conditions which made my footfalls echo incongruously in these catacombs of aeon-long death and silence. The very prints of my shoes behind me and the millennially untrodden dust made me shudder. Never before, if my mad dreams held anything of truth, had human feet pressed upon those immemorial pavements. Of the particular goals of my insane racing, my conscious mind held no hint. There was, however, some force of evil potency pulling at my dazed will and buried recollections so that I vaguely felt I was not running at random. I came to a downward incline and followed it to profounder depths. Floors flashed by me as I raced, but I did not pause to explore them. In my whirling brain, there had begun to beat a certain rhythm, which set my right hand twitching in unison. I wanted to unlock something, and felt that I knew all the intricate twists and pressures needed to do it. It would be like a modern safe with the combination lock. Dream or not, I had once known and still knew how any dream or scrap of unconsciously absorbed legend could have taught me a detail so minute, so intricate, and so complex, I did not attempt to explain to myself. I was beyond all coherent thought, for was not this the whole experience, this shocking familiarity? With a set of unknown ruins, and this monstrously exact identity of everything before me, with what only dreams and scraps of myth could have suggested, a horror beyond all reason. Probably it was my basic conviction then, as it is now, during my saner moments, that I was not awake at all, and that the entire buried city was a fragment of febrile hallucination. Eventually, I reached the lowest level and struck off to the right of the incline. For some shadowy reason, I tried to soften my steps, even though I lost speed thereby. There was a space I was afraid to cross on this last, deeply buried floor of the metal barred and closely guarded trap doors. There would be no guards now, and on that account I trembled and tiptoed as I had done in passing through that black basalt vault where a similar trapdoor had yawned. I felt a current of cool damp air as I had felt there, and wished that my course led in another direction. Why I had to take the particular course I was taking, I did not know. When I came to the space, I saw that the trapdoor yawned widely open. Ahead, the shelves began again, and I glimpsed on the floor before one of them, a heap very thinly covered in dust, where a number of cases had recently fallen. At the same moment a fresh wave of panic clutched me, though for some reason I could not discover why. Heaps of fallen cases were not uncommon, for all through the aeons this lightless labyrinth had been racked by the heavings of Earth and had echoed at intervals to the deafening clatter of toppling objects. It was only when I was nearly across the space that I realized why I shook so violently. Not the heap, but something about the dust of the level 4 was troubling to me. In the light of my torch, it seemed as if the dust was not as even as it ought to be. There were places where it looked thinner, as if it had been disturbed, not many months before. I could not be sure, for even as the apparently thinner places were dusty enough, yet a certain suspicion of regularity in the fancied unevenness was highly disquieting. When I brought the torchlight close to one of the queer places, I did not like what I saw, for the illusion of regularity became very great. It was as if there were regular lines of composite impressions, impressions that went in threes, each slightly over a foot square, and consisting of five nearly circular three-inch prints, one in advance of the other four. These possible lines of foot-square impressions appeared to lead in two directions, as if something had gone somewhere and returned. They were, of course, very faint, and there may have been illusions or accidents, but there was an element of dim, fumbling terror about the way I thought they ran. For at the end of them was the heap of cases which must have clattered down not long before, while at the other end was the ominous trapdoor with the cool, damp wind, yawning, unguarded, down to the abysses past imagination. Chapter 8 That my strained sense of compulsion was deep and overwhelming is shewn by its conquest of my fear. No rational motive could have drawn me on after that hideous suspicion of Prince and the creeping dream memories it excited. Yet my right hand, even as it shook with fright, still twitched rhythmically in its eagerness to turn a lock it hoped to find. Before I knew it, I was past the heap of lately fallen cases and running on tiptoe through aisles of utterly broken dust toward a point which I seemed to know morbidly, horribly well. My mind was asking itself questions whose origin and relevancy. I was only beginning to guess. Would the shelf be reachable by a human body? Could my human hand master all the aeon remembered motions of the lock? Could the lock be undamaged and workable? And what would I do? What dare I do with what, as I now commenced to realize, I both hoped and feared to find? Would it prove the awesome, brain-shattering truth of something past normal conception? Or shoo only that I was dreaming? The next I knew I had ceased my tiptoe racing and was standing still, staring at a row of maddeningly familiar hieroglyphed shelves. They were in a state of almost perfect preservation, and only three of the doors in this vicinity had sprung open. My feelings toward these shelves cannot be described. So utter and insistent was the sense of old acquaintance. I was looking high up at a row near the top and wholly out of my reach, and wondering how I could climb to best advantage. An open door four rows from the bottom would help, and the locks of the closed doors formed possible holds for my hands and feet. I would grip the torch between my teeth, as I had in other places, where both hands were needed. Above all, I must make no noise. Now, to get down what I wished to remove would be difficult, but I could probably hook its movable fastener in my coat collar and carry it like a knapsack. Again, I wondered whether the lock would be undamaged that I could repeat each familiar motion. I had not the least doubt, but I hoped the thing would not scrape or creep and that my hand could work it properly. Even as I thought these things, I had taken the torch in my mouth and begun to climb. The projecting locks were poor supports, but as I had expected. The open shelf helped greatly. I used both the difficulty, swinging door and the edge of the aperture itself in my ascent and managed to avoid any loud creaking balanced on the upper edge of the door, and leaning far to my right, I could just reach the lock I sought. My fingers, half numb from climbing, were very clumsy at first, but I soon saw that they were anatomically adequate, and the memory rhythm was strong in them. Out of unknown gulfs of time and intricate secret motions had somehow reached my brain correctly in every detail, for after less than five minutes of trying, there came a click, whose familiarity was all the more startling, because I had not consciously anticipated it. In another instant, the metal door was slowly swinging open, with only the faintest grating sound. Dazedly, I looked over the row of grayish case ends thus exposed, and felt a tremendous surge of some wholly inexplicable emotion. Just within reach of my right hand was a case whose curving hieroglyphs made me shake, with a pang infinitely more complex than one of mere fright. Still shaking, I managed to dislodge it amidst a shower of gritty flakes, and ease it over toward myself, without any violent noise. Like the other case I had handled, it was slightly more than twenty by fifteen inches in size, with curved mathematical designs and low relief. In thickness it just exceeded three inches. Crudely wedging it between myself and the surface I was climbing, I fumbled with the fastener, and finally got the hook free. Lifting the cover, I shifted the heavy object to my back, and let the hook catch hold of my collar. Hands now free, I awkwardly clambered down to the dusty floor and prepared to inspect my prize. Kneeling in the gritty dust, I swung the case around and rested it in front of me. My hands shook, and I dreaded to draw out the book within almost as much as I longed and felt compelled to do so. It had very gradually become clear to me what I ought to find, and this realization nearly paralyzed my faculties. If the thing were there, if I were not dreaming, the implications would be quite beyond the power of the human spirit to bear. What tormented me most was my momentary inability to feel that my surroundings were a dream. The sense of reality was hideous and again become so as I recall the scene. At length, I tremblingly pulled the book from its container and stared, fascinatedly, at the well-known hieroglyphs on the cover. It seemed to be in prime condition, and the curvilinear letters of the title held me in almost a hypnotized state, as if I could read them. Indeed, I cannot swear that I did not actually read them in some transient and terrible access of abnormal memory. I do not know how long it was before I dared to lift that thin middle cover. I temporized and made excuses to myself. I took the torch from my mouth and shut it off to save battery. Then in the dark, I screwed up my courage, finally lifting the cover without turning on the light. Last of all, I did indeed flash the torch upon the exposed page, steeling myself in advance to suppress any sound, no matter what I should find. I looked for an instant, then almost collapsed. Clenching my teeth, however, I kept silence. I sank wholly to the floor and put my hand to my forehead amidst the engulfing blackness. What I dreaded and expected was there. Either I was dreaming or time and space had become a mockery. I must be dreaming, but I would test the horror by carrying this thing back and shewing it to my son, if it were indeed a reality. My head swam frightfully, even though there were no visible objects in the unbroken gloom, to swirl around me. Ideas and images of the starkest terror, excited by vistas which glimpse and open up, began to throng in upon me and cloud my senses. I thought of those possible prints in the dust and trembled at the sound of my own breathing as I did so. Once again, I flashed the light and looked at the page, as a serpent's victim may look at the destroyer's eyes and fangs. Then, with clumsy fingers in the dark, I closed the book, put it in its container, and snapped the lid and the curious hook fastener. This is what I must carry back to the outer world if it truly existed, if the whole abyss truly existed, if I and the world itself truly existed. Just then, I tottered to my feet and commenced my return, I cannot be certain. It comes to me oddly as a measure of my sense of separation from the normal world. That, I did not even once look at my watch during those hideous hours underground, torch in hand, and with the ominous case under one arm. I eventually found myself tiptoeing in a kind of silent panic past the drop giving abyss and those lurking suggestions of prints. I lessened my precautions as I climbed up the endless inclines, but could not shake off a shadow of apprehension, which I had not felt on the downward journey. I dreaded having to repass through that black basalt crypt that was older than the city itself, where cold draughts welled up from unguarded depths. I thought of that which the great race had feared, and of what might still be lurking, be it ever so weak and dying down there. I thought of those possible five-circled prints, and of what my dreams had told me of such prints, and of strange winds and whistling noises associated with them. And I thought of the tales of the modern blacks wherein the horror of great winds and nameless subterranean ruins was dwelt upon. I knew from a carven wall symbol the right floor to enter, and came at last, after passing that other book I had examined, to the great circular space in the branching archways. On my right, and at once recognizable, was the arch through which I had arrived. This I now entered, conscious that the rest of my course would be harder, because of the tumbled state of the masonry outside the archive building. My new metal-case burden weighed upon me, and I found it harder and harder to be quiet, as I stumbled among debris and fragments of every sort. Then I came to the ceiling-high mound of debris through which I had wrenched a scanty passage. My dread at wriggling through again was infinite, for my first passage had made some noise, and I now, after seeing those possible prints, dreaded sound above all things. The case, too, doubled the problem of traversing the narrow crevice, but I clambered up the barrier as best I could and pushed the case through the aperture ahead of me. Then, torch in mouth, I scrambled through myself, my back torn as before by stalactites. As I tried to grasp the case again, it fell some distance ahead of me down the slope of the debris, making a disturbing clatter and arousing echoes which sent me into cold perspiration. I lunged for it at once and regained it without further noise. But a moment afterward, the slipping of blocks under my feet raised a sudden and unprecedented din. My din was my undoing, for falsely or not, I thought I heard it answered in a terrible way from the spaces far behind me. I thought I heard a shrill whistling sound, like nothing else on Earth, and beyond any adequate verbal description. I may have been only my imagination. If so, what followed with grim irony? Since, save for the panic of this thing, the second thing might have never happened. As it was, my frenzy was absolute and relieved. Taking my torch in my hand and clutching feebly at the case, I leaped and bounded wildly, ahead with no idea in my brain beyond a mad desire to race out of these nightmare ruins to the waking world of desert and moonlight which lay so far above. I hardly knew it when I reached the mountain of debris, which towered into the vast blackness beyond the caved-in roof, and bruised and cut myself repeatedly in scrambling up its steep slope of jagged blocks and fragments. Then came the great disaster. Just as I blindly crossed the summit, unprepared for the sudden dip ahead, my feet slipped utterly, and I found myself involved in a mangling avalanche of sliding masonry whose cannon-loud uproar split the black cavern air in a deafening series of earth-shaking reverberations. I have no recollection of emerging from this chaos, but a momentary fragment of consciousness chews me as plunging and tripping and scrambling along the corridor amidst the clangor, case and torch still with me. Then, just as I approached that primal basalt crypt I had so dreaded, utter madness came. For as the echoes of the avalanche died down, there became audible a repetition of that frightful, alien whistling which I thought I had heard before. This time, there was no doubt about it. And what was worse, it came from a point not behind, but ahead of me. Probably, I shrieked aloud then. I have a dim picture of myself as flying through the hellish basalt vault of the Elder Things and hearing that damnable alien sound piping up from the open, unguarded door of limitless, near-blackness, there was a wind, too, not merely a cool, damp draught, but a violent, purposeful blast, belching savagely and frigidly from that abominable gulf whence the obscene whistling came. There are memories of leaping and lurching over obstacles of every sort, and with that torrent of wind and shrieking sound growing moment by moment, and seeming to curl and twist purposely around me as it struck out wickedly from the spaces behind and beneath, though in my rear the wind had the oddest effect of hindering instead of aiding my progress, as if it acted like a noose or a lasso thrown around me. heedless of the noise I made, I clattered over a great barrier of blocks and was again in the structure that led me to the surface. I recall glimpsing the archway to the room of machines and almost crying out as I saw the incline leading down to where one of the most blasphemous trap doors must be awning two levels below. But instead of crying out, I muttered over and over to myself that this was all a dream from which I would soon awake. Perhaps I was in camp. Perhaps I was at home in Arkham. As these hopes bolstered my sanity, I began to mount the incline to the higher level. I knew, of course, that I had the four-foot cleft to recross, yet was too racked by other fears to realize the full horror, until I came almost upon it. On my descent, the leap across had been easy, but I could clear the gap as readily when going uphill, and hampered by fright, exhaustion, and the weight of the metal case, and the anomalous backward tug of that demon wind. I thought of these things at the last moment, and thought also of the nameless entities which might be lurking in the black abysses below the chasm. My wavering torch was growing feeble, but I could tell by some obscure memory when I cleared the cleft. The chill blast of wind and the nauseous whistling shrieks behind me were for a moment like a merciful opiate, dulling my imagination to the horror of the yawning gulf ahead. And then I became aware of the added blast and whistling in front of me, tides of abomination surging up through the cleft itself, from the depths unimagined and unimaginable. Now, indeed, the essence of pure nightmare was upon me. Santi departed, and ignoring everything except the animal impulse of flight, I merely struggled and plunged upward, over the incline's debris as if no gulf had existed. Then I saw the chasm's edge, leap frenziedly with every ounce of strength I possessed, and was instantly engulfed in the pandemonic vortex of loathsome sound, an utter materially tangible blackness. This was the end of my experience, so far as I recall. Any further impressions belong wholly to the domain of phantasmagoric delirium. Dreams, madness, and memory merge wildly together in a series of fantastic, fragmentary delusions, which can have no relation to anything real. There was a hideous fall through... Incalculable leagues of viscous, sentient darkness, and a babble of noises utterly alien to all that we know of the Earth and its organic life. Dormant, rudimentary senses seem to start into vitality within me, telling of pits and voids peopled by floating horrors and leading to sunless crags and oceans and teeming cities of windowless basalt towers upon which no light ever shone. Secrets of the primal planet and its immemorial aeons flashed through my brain without the aid of sight or sound, and there were known to me things which not even the wildest of my former dreams had ever imagined, and all the while cold fingers of damp vapor clutched and pricked at me, and that eldritch, damnable whistling shrieked above all the alternations of babble and Silence in the whirlpools of darkness around. Afterward were visions of the Cyclopean city of my dreams, not in ruins, but just as I had dreamed of it. I was in my conical, non-human body again, and mingled with crowds of the great race and the captive minds who carried books up and down the lofty corridors and vast inclines. Then, superimposed upon these pictures, were frightful momentary flashes of non visual consciousness involving desperate struggles, a writhing free form, clutching tentacles of whistling wind and insane bat like flight through half solid air, a feverish burrowing through the cyclone whipped dark, and a wild stumbling and scrambling over fallen masonry. Once there was a curious intrusive flash of half sight. A faint, diffused suspicion of bluish radiance far overhead. Then there came a dream of wind-pursued climbing and crawling, of wiggling into a blaze of sardonic moonlight through a jumble of debris which slid and collapsed after me amidst a morbid hurricane. It was the evil, monotonous beating of that maddening moonlight which at last told me of the return of what I had once known as the objective waking world. I was clawing prone through the sands of the Australian desert, and around me shrieked such a tumult of wind as I had never before known on our planet's surface. My clothing was in rags, and my whole body was a mass of bruises and scratches. Full consciousness returned very slowly, and at no time could I tell just where my true memory left off and delirious dreams began. There had seemed to be a mound of titan blocks, an abyss beneath, a monstrous revelation from the past, and a nightmare horror at the end. But how much of this was real? my flashlight was gone and likewise any metal case i may have discovered had there been such a case or any abyss or any mound raising my head i looked behind me and saw only the sterile undulant sands of the waste the demon wind died down and the bloated fungoid moon sank reddeningly in the west i lurched to my feet and began to stagger southwestward toward the camp what in truth had happened to me had I merely collapsed in the desert and dragged a dream racked body over miles of sand and buried blocks? If not, how could I bear to live any longer? For in this new doubt, all my faith in the myth-born unreality of my visions dissolved once more into the hellish, older doubting. If that abyss was real, then the great race was real, and its blasphemous reachings and seizures in the cosmos-wide vortex of time, were no myths or nightmares, but a terrible, soul-shattering actuality. Had I, in full hideous fact, been drawn back to a pre-human world of 150 million years ago, in those dark, baffling days of the amnesia? Had my present body been a vehicle of a frightful alien consciousness from Pelogian gulfs of time? Had I, as the captive mind of those shambling horrors, indeed known that accursed city of stone in its primordial heyday, and wriggled down those familiar corridors in the loathsome shape of my captor, were those tormenting dreams of more than twenty years the offspring of my stark monstrous memories? Had I veritably talked with minds from reachless corners of time and space, learned the universe's secrets, past and to come, and written the annals of my own world for the metal cases of those Titan archives. And were those others, those shocking elder things of the mad winds, demon pipings, and truth a lingering, lurking menace, waiting and slowly weakening in black abysses, while varied shapes of life drag out their multi-millennial courses, in the planet's age-wracked surface? I do not know. If that abyss was what it held were real, there is no hope. Then all too truly, there lies upon this world of man a mocking and incredible shadow out of time. But mercilessly, there is no proof that these things are other than fresh phases of my myth-born dreams. I did not bring back the middle case that would have been a proof, and so far those subterranean corridors have not been found. If the laws of the universe are kind, they will never be found. But I must tell my son what I saw, or thought I saw, and let him use his judgement as a psychologist, engaging the reality of my experience and communicating this account to others. I have said that the awful truth behind my tortured years of dreaming hinges absolutely on the actuality of what I thought I saw in those Cyclopean buried ruins. It has been hard for me literally to set down the crucial revelation, though no reader can have failed to guess it. Of course it lay in that book within the middle case, the case which I pried out of its forgotten lair amidst the undisturbed dust of a million centuries. No eye had seen, no hand had touched that book since the advent of man to this planet. And yet when I flashed my torch upon it in that frightful megalithic abyss, I saw the queerly pigmented letters on that brittle aeon-brown cellulose pages were not indeed any nameless hieroglyphs of Earth's youth. They were indeed the letters of our familiar alphabet, spelling out words of the English language in my own handwriting.